that Kirk Parsley was coming in, their eyes lit up. They all knew who you were, very excited. So Kirk is a really well-respected uh, expert on all things performance, primarily sleep, but he he takes care of clients uh, really on sort of holistic life performance. Yeah. Yeah. And Mr. Wellborn. Yeah. Hey, uh, John Wellborn. I'm CEO of Power Athlete, former 10-year NFL player. Um, after that, after retiring, I worked for CrossFit for a number of years, teaching a uh, specialty matter expert for performance and really teaching CrossFit community how to use uh, the just a rubric for performance, um, you know, and how to apply it over towards field sports, just how to make bigger, stronger athletes. So I did that for a number of years. Obviously, started my company, Power Athlete, 2012. We traveled the world. Basically, I've taught people from the Arctic Circle down to New Zealand how to lift weights, how to perform, and more importantly, how to use what you do in the weight room and translate it onto the field. And uh, we work with Naval Special Warfare, had a contract with development group for a number of years, and uh, help people develop online fitness technologies, and also work with uh, special projects, kind of like the Drake's Passage deal. Yeah, yeah, awesome. And your, and your business has coaching yes you never talk about that but i think that's a big deal yeah um you know one of the Turn things that i saw was a huge gap in the market when you look at like the nsca and some of these groups they're very agnostic of training like here's the information this is what we understand about athletes and then they test people for certifications what i wanted to do was prepare coaches is almost like here's a ready-made uh, set of tools so that you could walk into any weight room and train athletes at the highest level. So ours is a lot more steeped in my methodology of power athlete and how to train athletes. And uh, the people that use it have gone on and do and done very, very well. I mean, we're responsible for hundreds of scholarships, professional athletes, Olympic athletes, and really some high performers. So that's been a very rewarding deal. Um, the online methodology, uh, people go through an online course when they finish to actually come to power athlete and test in person. And um, we have pretty decent uh, pass rate. Quite frequently fail. Uh, <laughs> well, I've seen some people get smoked out there. Yeah, uh, it's a sad deal. I always want everybody to pass. But unfortunately, not everybody takes it with the same serious nature they yeah. need to. And, you know, we have three pieces. You got to be able to write the information. You have to be able to get up and speak about it. Socratic method. And you also have to be able to teach it. And uh, it's, you know, just showing up with a high five and a cool T-shirt doesn't get you passing our into our uh, what we call our block collective and it's been a really good we have about 150 coaches around the world and every single one of them i could tap in and bring into anything and they would all come in and kick ass they actively use it they coach it and they live it and uh it's been great to really create a community of like-minded your, individuals one of your blocks up there the i'll bring one for it yeah, and uh steel blocks that yeah so they, so the act so nice uh for the people that pass um i take uh three by three you know obviously little squares uh, and basically make these blocks and I stamp them with a 50 ton press with uh, a skull on our logos. And then I weld them up and it's like roughly 36 inches. I mean, three, so what would it be 18 times three? What would that be? Seven, uh, uh, 86, 54. So inches of, of weld per one. And I do anywhere from eight of them at a time to 20. And so I'll go in and weld for a whole day. And then, it's awesome. uh, you know, when people pass, I, you know, obviously gift them with this something I've created, something I've invested, just like they've invested. And if people don't pass, I don't give it to them just because I've invested into the award or the piece or really just the, 
this symbol that you've passed through this. You know, I always hated going for certifications where they like give you just some piece of paper with some guy's random name on it. Yeah. And they, you put it in a folder and throw it away. Yeah, it goes away. This becomes a paperweight. Guys travel with them. They take yeah. them in different pictures. And uh, it's Dude, been really exciting. Giving someone a gift always feels good. But giving someone a gift that you made is a whole other level of just and, and good feeling. Yeah. They're really cool. I have seven of them. I think I gave you a super block, didn't I? Didn't I give you a super block? Oh, I thought you had one. I have one for you. No, I'm pretty sure when you came and gave that talk, I was supposed to get, I have a super block for you. Didn't I give it to you? Oh, shit. I don't remember names, but I remember that. One thing that I really appreciated my experience at Power Athlete recently was you know, I've seen a lot of trainers worked with a lot of really awesome, very gifted trainers. Most of them will teach you how to do something and maybe explain some of the why. You guys are really good at at folding in the why as you explain the what. And it really just makes so much more sense. And in the three weeks since I've been out there at that session, my workouts have been way better just because of the couple of days I spent with you guys. Well, my idea is um, I'm not trying to like feed people. I want to teach people to fish. So when you come and train with us and you go through anything, especially with that, the faster I can get you up to a basic level of knowledge and more importantly, a level of proficiency by educating you as we train and giving you all of this information, like everything I've created, I'm not trying to hold tight. Like, you know, this is my pretty little thing. And I, you know, I'm the, the only person that can give you this. I try to just give it to people because I want people to use it. And the faster I can educate you and get you up to a certain level of knowledge, then the faster we can move. And I'm not trying to like, I don't know. Like I, I always get and nervous. I think it's also like the foundation. Like, you know, I've, I've been my whole damn life, you know, and I've had a lot of coaching and all this other stuff. And I, I remember going into y'all's gym and you're talking about the different hinges, and I was like, why didn't nobody ever teach me that? Of course, like yeah. it's such an easy concept. It's such a, it's an important concept, and it's pretty easy. And then you can think, okay, what am I actually trying to do here? Like what hand am I trying to do? And then that helps you with your form without anybody coaching you because you can feel like I'm doing that hand or I'm not doing that hand. And if I don't know how to do that hand, then I need to somebody say, "Hey, why why isn't this working? Like why am I not why am I not moving the way I should?" Well, and yeah. when we brought the guys and let's just use the barbell back squat, every one of the guys like, oh, I can't squat. I can't have this. You know, they, were, they gave me all of these like prerequisites on why they couldn't. And I always said, let's just warm up and see how it goes. Uh, I've literally taught tens of thousands of people to squat. And I can probably get you to squat well within a probably anywhere from three to 10 minutes. Just give me the opportunity. Every one of those dudes like had this light bulb moment where their eyes exploded and they were like, I don't know, I've never moved this well. Why didn't anybody make it this simple? And I'm like, because very few people have had as many opportunities as I have to have uh, coached this stuff. So I retired from the NFL in 2009. We started CrossFit football that year. I taught 36 seminars and every weekend we went in with 50 new people. I proceeded to teach hundreds around the globe every time we get anywhere from 20 to 50 new people. So I had the opportunity to work this stuff out in real time, meet different people, languages. And you, when you get that much opportunity to work with people, it just becomes very simple. Yeah. And it's like, um, don't stress. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. Everybody has the same set of faults. I'm going to fix this. And we just keep tweaking it until all of a sudden everybody does it. And then all of a sudden they get these light bulb moments yeah. and they end up moving pretty well and they all feel empowered. And my goal is to educate you enough, give you enough information, have you moving so that you're empowered and that you don't need me. It's a terrible business model. Mine's, mine's <laughs> the same way. Like, I only coach people for a year. My clients, you don't get me for a year because, like, 
I'm going to teach you everything you need to know in a year. And I tell all my clients, I'm like, hey, uh, you know, at the end of this year, the person who's going to know the most in the world about your health is me. But the person who's going to know the next most is you. And any doctor you have after that or any coach or whatever you have, you're going to know more about you and your health and your, uh, your situation than they are. Um, and then it's up to you to keep doing that because I'm not motivated by, you know, holding people's hands and, you know, coaching them to do the same thing or encouraging them to do the same thing over and over again. It's like, I want to teach you, I want to teach you how to do it. And then, and then it's a decision whether or not you're going to do it. You know? Yeah. It's up to them. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I did. I think it's a great, um, I have always wanted for people to be empowered, to do, to, to have the tools to make the, their, their own life changes. Um, you know, and we got kind of pulled in to start doing a bunch of online fitness technologies and help train Rogue develop their app with uh, training programs. And so we decided to kind of venture into this like online training market. And really what I wanted to do was provide people, obviously the information to be able to do it themselves. And then the problem was people are like, okay, we understand what you're saying, but we like the way you do it better. And so I was like, all right, I'm, I'm more than happy to provide direction but I'm constantly trying to educate people. And especially when they get into this stuff, I'm like, okay, this is how this whole thing flows. And um, uh, like, if they want to do it, if they want. So, I mean, we have thousands of people in these online training programs and it's like an incredible community of individuals. But what I'm constantly amazed by is how intelligent the people are. So like one of the guys in my training program um, is a PhD and uh, university professor and teaches strength and you know conditioning performance uh and he follows all of our stuff and i was like dude you do this stuff at a, such a high level he's like i've never seen anybody um put this stuff together in such a creative way and i've never seen this level of adaptation he's like to the point where i go back and i teach my students based upon this information he's one of our block coaches as well and i mean the guy's like uh you know i mean so it, it's pretty neat that when high level people come back to you and they're like you do it better than i do and i've learned so much and i'm like well dude i'm kind of humbled yeah. In that way. So, you know, I mean, there's always this constant, I'm sure you guys run into this where you're like, is what I'm doing making a fucking difference in the world? Am I helping people move farther down the path yeah. of success and health and wellness and just being better versions of themselves? Or am I just over here just fucking status quoing? And that's this, this imposter syndrome. Sure. And, and I think anybody who has who's worth their salt goes through this deal. I think if you're such Everybody a disingenuous it. piece of shit, you're just like, oh, fuck it. You or know? you're just an idiot or you have a massive ego that you can't control. Yeah. Right? And uh, um, I'm around people periodically that like their ego is like, doesn't really flow with everything else where you're meeting and you're like, I don't know where this ego is coming from. But it comes from fear. They're compensating. They're afraid of something. So they put on this armor so that they feel like they're safe from exposing whatever that, that thing is about themselves that they're ashamed of. Yeah. And this is really the nature of my coaching, right? I'm helping people understand who they are and teaching them how to cultivate their courage to embrace that and love that and then share it with the world. That's where the best shit comes from. That's why you guys are both good at what you do, because you've gotten to that point where intellectually, you know that you know your shit, right? But beyond that, spiritually and emotionally, you've come to embrace who you are and you aren't afraid of that. And so you share it with the world and you can walk through the world feeling unassailable. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh, I've constantly thought that the whole world is just a whole bunch of people trying to like look like they're busy enough yeah. so that nobody figures out that they don't know what the hell they're doing. You know, I yeah, think that's the, like the recipe for the government. The, the more I, the more I learn, the less I know that I know. Yeah, for like the last four years, four five, seven, I've never really followed politics. I, mean, you know, I think everybody's followed politics. All this politics now because it's just all popped up. But I thought so, Senators and congressmen. Are like, 
these were like the smartest people in the country that really had their stuff together. Now, man, at that point, you've been pulled up. No, like, it's really like sad. Grown ups, real grown ups ran the country. Uh, like, we were all just clowning around. I'm like, man, I, I tried to engage it. I that way when I was going to become a doctor. I'm like, oh, these are really good. So, you know, there's just indicators of being a doctor, and sure, and uh, egocentric, and, you know, like, I call it the cowardice contagion. It's just cowardice. Yeah. I tried to engage this Texas state congressman yesterday on this issue because they're in they're in session right now. And I sent him a tweet about something that he was just wrong on. And I was very respectful and positive. And I said, hey, here's some here's some data to consider. And he responded with like this shitty tweet, didn't even acknowledge the data that, data that I shared and said, it's not political. And I said, well, you're playing political games. Like, can we just have a conversation right now about the numbers? Like, this is for the state of Texas and the taxpayers. He wasn't willing to even have the conversation. And th that's the majority of the people that we've voted into office. And it's not their fault. It's our fault for being dumb enough to vote these idiots into office. Yeah. But we digress. Um, yeah. Want to get on to protein. Yeah. Oh, a little bit of background on me for those of you who don't know me. So Judd Kaufman, uh, former Navy SEAL, enlisted guy, sniper, serial entrepreneur. I uh, founded this company, co-founded this company, Desert Door Distillery, <laughs> which we're drinking today. On Cinco de Mayo. On Cinco de Mayo. Desert Door is the, is the only distillery that makes um, distilled spirits from wild harvested, fully sustainable uh, ingredients. So we, we harvest Sotol, which is native to Texas and Mexico. It's super clean, and that's why we're drinking it today. Uh, today, nowadays, I'm a coach, so I focus on more holistic um, performance, and really it's identity work that I help people um, work through so they can figure out who they are and then how that fits into the world. So that's, that's what I'm up to. And uh, all right, let's dive into the content. So protein, let's uh, want to start with Kirk. Assume you're talking to someone who doesn't lift, doesn't take protein supplements. Why do we need protein? And what is it? Um, well, what it is, I've gone deep with that. That's, uh, Maybe at a high level, yeah, right? So, it's, I mean, pro protein, um, you know, pro protein is basically the structure of almost everything in, in any kind of animal, any type of uh, life form, even, uh, even plants have protein. Um, you know, in, you know, most people know there's three macros that we focus on when we're talking about our nutritional status, you know, our, our, nutri our nutritional needs, carbohydrates, protein, and fat. Um, they all, do, you know, they, they all essentially work towards the same goals, but they have more kind of specific uses. Um, uh, you know, and so we, you know, we need to ingest protein as a fuel source. Uh, protein can actually become glucose, so you can raise your blood glucose levels with that. Um, but you know, protein gets broken down into amino acids, and amino acids are used throughout various structures uh, in our body for you know actually uh, building a structure. They're also consumed in biological reactions, so they're like a substrate for uh, for um, you know various reactions. Um, if you think about your immune system, people know like you know, uh, the IgGs and IgG, you know, uh, do we have antibodies, right? People know about all this from COVID antibodies. Those are, those are blood proteins. Um, you know, the pro you, you have a protein in your red blood cells that carry oxygen around your know, proteins and your muscles, obviously in your, and your bones and your tendons and your ligaments, all your organs. So, you know, it, it's a basic building block of life. Um, and, uh, you know, basically if you consume an animal, you know, everything you're consuming is either protein, fat, or carbohydrate. Yeah, pretty much. Um, it's just a chemical building block. We call them by amino acids. That's all it is. So, 
it's pretty basic. I wish it was something a lot more uh, advanced than that, but it's really just a uh, chemical structure. We call building blocks that are amino acids, and there's several, uh, seven essentials and some non-essential amino acids, and those are all consumed and uh, come up, and that actually uh, creates you know, nutrients for a body that allow us to not only continue to grow and uh, put on muscle, but also live a healthy life. So when we think about protein, a lot of people now are consuming more plant protein for various reasons. Um, there's a debate, plant versus animal protein. Um, it seems to me that it comes down to the amino acids. Uh, can you guys speak to the differences in these two proteins? Yeah, so animal-based proteins are gonna have a complete amino acid profile, and I actually pulled it up, which is uh, uh, phenylphthalein, uh, valenium, um, theranine, uh, what is it, trifa, trifa, I'm so bad at these words, uh, methylene, leucine, isoleucine, lysine, and then histine. And those are our amino acids that uh, we call our essential EEAs. These, those are the seven essentials. Yep. Essential meaning it has to come from your diet. Yep. There's, yeah, every I'm other, sorry, there's nine actually. Every, yeah, every there's nine. You can, you can make um, your, your you know, biochemical reactions in your body can use um, various structures to make any other. And those you can't get in plant protein, or most plant proteins don't have um, those. They're, they're not in the same concentrations. Yeah. I mean, not even close. Um, you know, I I think you know, I'll, I'll be blunt. I, I think the plant protein is junk. Uh, I think I think it's uh, it's purely an ideology. It has nothing to do with biology. It has nothing to do with science. It, there's there's no research anywhere that showed it to be superior to animal. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And you, the only way to get it is to process it, right? It's like, um, so if you look at all the research on it, you know, nutritional research is inherently flawed anyways. Um, you know, they use something called the NHANES and it's basically the self-reporting. And so, uh, you know, they'll say something like, well, we studied people, we studied people with high protein diets and they had this, that, or whatever. Well, how do you know they had a high protein diet? Well, because they reported that on their- Right, they just told you. And so, and, and, the, and, they're just they're just considering protein, right? And they're like, okay, but are they getting all their protein from cheeseburgers and McDonald's, right? right? Like, yeah. so so what do you what do you really stand with that? So they're inherently junk for that reason. But if you look at the research on, uh, and, I, and I haven't looked at any of it recently, I think so. There was I forwarded you guys there, over a few. I didn't know if you had a chance yeah, to go through them. Yet, but um, there there was a there was a big watershed publication in uh, Cell Metabolism, I think. You know, uh, the, the one about cancer and whether we can talk about that later. Um, but uh, if you look at all the studies, they're all comparing, even even with the with the animal proteins, they're usually using like a whey protein. Mm -hmm. So they can weigh and measure it and they can say like, you know, this, like we're giving them this many grams, we know exactly that many grams. Uh, because the same size steak doesn't always have the same amount of protein in it because there's a fat ratio and all that. So, um, but all, but and, and so they can do that, but they're comparing one processed food to another. Yeah, the original research was all soy. Uh, that was kind of the only plant they used. But now there's like pea and rice and yep. hemp and all these other things. But it's a highly processed thing. And I, I think we've learned our lesson. I feel like we should have learned our lesson about processed foods. You know? Yeah, well, the, uh, so um, I, think just, I think it's anytime there's a lobbying group pushing for something. Sure. I'm, I'm highly suspicious. So, so I, I've actually got into this debate, and I actually read a, uh, have written a bunch about it, and I actually just pulled some of the stuff that I have on my on uh, on Power Athlete, and also talked to me, Johnny. But in summary, the systematic review and meta analysis have found that animal 
plant-based proteins tend to have a more favorable effect on lean body mass compared to plant-based proteins, and the benefit appears more pronounced in younger athletes. Hmm. Uh, on the other hand, protein source is not likely to have an impact on muscle strength, which I thought was interesting. Um, but I think the real, that really falls on its face is that I don't believe that most people understand how to train for strength or hypertrophy or a combination of both. Or, and how long it takes to get the strength benefit. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, for years, if you go back and read any of the, you know, science of practice at Eskorsky or, you know, uh, any of that, they always talked about a few, you know, a bunch of different mechanisms for muscle growth. Um, is that one? And. Okay. We're having a little technical difficulty. Uh, but. Okay. Not this. This. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. I, I don't have headphones. Oh. So, uh, what really became like a limiting factor, I think people just figure, like, oh, I'm going to take a protein shake and I'm going to put on muscle. Um, muscle is a byproduct of adaptation. So, you're basically forcing your body into an adaptation, which is increasing lean, body, uh, lean tissue or lean muscle. But the mechanisms for it are super confusing. Yeah, um, I mean, when you get down to it and you look at all the most research, and even this stuff came out within the last couple of years, mechanical tension, so creating as much tension as you can in the muscle, and then working the muscle to failure. The bodybuilders might have been right after all that time uh, under tension. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, but, but, but yeah. also you think about like, let's say you squeeze a bar and you're creating as much tension as you can in the muscle, and then you're going to do reps up into the point where you cannot do one more. Right. Um, you know, if you're leaving reps in the tank in this, I mean, in terms of strength is fine. Like if you're able to use compensatory acceleration and other factors in, ter in terms of how to build strength, you can build strength very well. But now when you start trying to create this hybrid of strength and hypertrophy, uh, or are you just trying to build for hypertrophy? Um, you know, there's a lot of yeah. bodybuilders that carry a ton of muscle that aren't real strong. And there's other bodybuilders that carry a ton of muscle that are stronger than shit. Yeah. You also have power lifters that carry a lot of body fat, carry muscle, but also move a ton of weight. So, yeah. I mean, it's really, uh, you know, not mutually exclusive, but I always think that if you're training properly, you should look like you lift weights. Yeah. Well, the, I mean, so to answer your question further too, is, um, you know, anytime we're dealing with a processed food too, we're removing the matrix that the food comes in. Right. Um, and so, you know, the most important thing people need to realize is that we don't understand 99.9% .9 of what people think we do understand. So, um, if COVID didn't treat, teach you that, I don't know what, what would, right. The immune system wildly complex, you know, it's a, it's complex system on top of complex system on top of complex system. Same thing with climate change, same thing with, you know, virology so what why did they get the virology so wrong you know, like it's it's super complex you know but but we evolved to be on this planet we are part of this planet and we evolved to eat the things that are on this planet and there are there's plenty of things going on that we don't understand right um you know it's it's, it's a, an example of something like testosterone you go to a doctor and he says here's your testosterone well testosterone comes from cholesterol and there's 17 steps in between that and testosterone and a lot of those steps are metabolically active. So what are you doing about all of those, right? Yeah. You're getting rid of all those. And so there's, so I think the more you can reapproximate your ancestral uh, beginning. Um, so the, the, the matrix matters, I'm sure, but then there's also, uh, there's all sorts of micronutrients and animal products yeah. that are, that are not in pea protein and rice protein and hemp protein. You're not getting calcium from that. You're not getting, you know, you're, you're not getting creatine from that. You, you're not going to get any creatine uh, from, 
you know, if you don't eat meat, uh, unless you're taking a, again, a powder or some sort of supplement. Um, so there's, uh, yeah, there, there's people whose ideologies say that plant-based protein is better, but that has, that's not a biological argument. That's a climate morality. Like, there's some yeah. sort of ideology behind that. The, as far as the biological science of it, animal proteins are superior and I'll, I'll, debate anybody on that um well they you know superior is really interesting because what you can do is you can kind of move the the goalposts on this all the time yeah. um in terms of um seeing big strong athletes obviously i believe animal-based protein is by far the best solution can somebody carry a high amount of muscle eating nothing nothing but plant-based proteins and taking anabolic steroids 100 uh, the problem is, is that the amount in which they have to take it, like, let's say, for example, you need to consume 200 grams of protein animal base. We always estimate at least, uh, that's about two thirds of what they should. So then maybe it's three or 350 or 400 grams, almost double what they would have to consume with plant-based proteins. And there's records of, you know, some high level vegan bodybuilders carrying a ton of muscle consuming four or 500 grams of protein. I mean, just, I, I did a little, uh, analysis and to get three grams of leucine, which, you know, ends up being a major factor for the anabolic effect. And yeah. That's the like the, that's the primary yeah. driver for the muscle growth. Yeah. It's about five ounces of chicken, uh, one cup of Greek yogurt and four eggs gives you about three grams of leucine for, um, a plant-based approach. You need 13 mm. slices of whole grain wheat bread, one pound of spinach, one and a quarter pound of lentils and one and a half pounds of peas. That's so, what I usually eat for breakfast. So the uh, the metabolic, I'm sorry. The, and you need diapers. When I was going to say uh, <laughs> the gastrointestinal, the stomach distress that I would have from consuming that many, that like that volume of lentils and beans and spinach and wheat bread is just, yeah. there's no way. Yeah, I, I've read that it is um, much more difficult for most people, the vast majority of people to process the plant protein versus the animal protein. So which is about, an interesting thing. So think about the greatest form of white privilege or just, uh, you know, not even like white privilege, but just like first world privilege mm -hmm. to be like, I'm going to eat the most difficult processed, <laughs> least nutrient dense diet imaginable. And I'm going to do it to a point where I can put on muscle. Whereas you think about, you know, uh, ancestrally, I mean, you can go back and look at all the Western price and I mean, that's really who we have a good snapshot of some of the early hunter gatherer tribes. I mean, every one of them ate, um, you know, animal-based diet, uh, supplemented with fat. I mean, you go through and they're like, oh, you know, the Catawba Indians ate a high amount of sweet potatoes and uh, other things, roots and bulbs, and had 60% carbohydrates. Yeah, but they still ate meat, yeah. still ate fat. I yeah, mean, they took you on those buffalo, yeah, ate so, the whole fucking thing. I mean, you know, the Anud Indians, I mean, consume a diet ex exclusively of, uh, you know, uh, whale, seal, and uh, animal, you know, The, the other fat. thing, too, to remember is, like, when hunter-gatherers um, are consuming meat, because they, because they got it. Yeah. Right. If they had it every day, that's what they would eat. They're not, they're not choosing to eat the other stuff. It's like yeah. that's keeping them alive. The roots and tubers are keeping them alive. If they could get a Buffalo every day, you know, and, and consume it, they would. And the, and the, you know, the other thing, the, um, you know, the, the one, you know, the, the biggest argument around uh, fruits and vegetables, and I'm not anti fruits and vegetables, I'm just saying, but, uh, the biggest argument around that is the vitamins and, and micronutrients, right? That's all in the organ meat. And if you look at the apex predator, any apex predator does not eat the muscle, right? Yeah. They a lion, a tiger, whatever they catch it. They catch an animal, they eat the guts and they leave and the hyenas and the 
vultures and stuff eat the mussels. Yeah. Um, so we do don't eat that. Thing, do we know, don't. We do don't do a lot of that in first world anymore. Yeah. Um, we did a lot in World War Two, uh, you know, because there's a shortage of beef. But um, you know, if if you eat organ meat, and and again, this is this is I'm not coaching anybody on what to do. I'm just saying as a as a principle, if you ate organ meat, uh, you would never eat. You'd never need to eat a fruit or a vegetable again for the rest of your life. Like you, I'd you like could eating get, fruits and vegetables. You could, and I'm not again. I'm not saying this is what you should no. do. I'm just saying, from a from a biological necessity, you could live the rest of your life without ever eating a vegetable or a fruit uh, or a nut or a seed. You, if you had enough animal products, you could you can you can get everything you need out of those animals. I think I eat like three ounces of liver. Uh, every two weeks. So what I do is I freeze liver. I cut it up into little cubes and I eat it frozen. So when you, when you look at like the frozen, so, um, years ago, Matt Lalonde told me that cooking of liver, cause it's such a high iron content. And, uh, I don't know if you guys know Matt Lalonde is, he was a Harvard PhD. Who's, uh, now he's a recluse. Um, but one of the, he was a recluse people, then. <laughs> yeah. He's one of the smarter people I know, but he told me, he goes, you know, there's such a high iron content in the liver that actually cooking it with any heat uh, ends up destroying a lot of the nutrients. So his recommendation is just throw it in the freezer, uh, cut it into little cubes and pull it out, maybe an ounce, two ounces, three ounces, and then just eat it raw. Like just like, just throw it in your mouth, little small bites of frozen deal. And like every two weeks, um, we actually did a test with uh, Tex who, um, you know, one of my power athlete coaches, he ended up eating, I think it was like three to anywhere from three to 12 ounces of liver a week. And then raw. Uh, no, he was cooking it. Okay. Uh, just real, like, uh, low heat. Seared. I think he was doing like, um, sous vide mm -hmm. and eating liver. And, uh, we ended up getting blood work done and he had completely hacked his Krebs cycle, even though he was eating probably two or 300 grams of carbohydrates a day, he was in ketosis and actually was, uh, uh, close to liver toxicity. Oh, wow. So sort of vitamin A toxicity. Vitamin A tox. Yeah. So. Uh, these people that are like, you know, the liver king that are consuming all this. It's like, dude, he literally did hate liver every single day for 12 weeks and pretty much had, you know, vitamin A toxicity and hacked his Krebs cycle. Twin. Like, even though he's eating carbs, he was in ketosis. And the doctor, when we got all the blood work done, was like, I don't know what you're doing, but stop what you're doing. And uh, I think it's too much of a good thing. Yeah, I'm sure. You know, the, I was reading about the Comanche Indians. I'm a bow hunter and I was curious to know what their ceremony was, was the, around uh, a summer um what's the book uh Mid, um, um what's it empire of the summer moon yeah. yeah that's a fantastic book there's tons of good literature on the comanches yeah. and all the other tribes that you know lived around around texas and across the united states but you know they would they would take down a deer and everybody would come in around this carcass and they would take the liver out and they would pass it around everyone would take a bite of that thing raw and that was like the the, the climax of the celebration of taking this animal down so they knew that's where the nutrients are that's where they went first and then the heart well i mean and they yeah. didn't cook them i mean they found that with um on like um you know when these guys would get on ships that they were all getting scurvy and they couldn't keep fresh fruits so they knew that if they brought on animals and ate the liver they were fine well the, the limes that's why we call them limeys um uh, i i eat uh, nose to tail when i feel y'all have had that but that's uh you can order that online and it's uh it's ground organ meat mm -hmm. uh so it's it's uh liver heart tongue and maybe kidney or something i don't know but it, it's grounded and it's in the um uh, it's mixed with uh, ground beef and then I'll, I'll mix that with some other ground meat um and i i do that like once or twice a week um yeah. and then and i i feel i feel pretty comfortable with, with that um but we're, 
we're getting off the topic of protein again, aren't we? No. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's um, yeah. No, I mean the uh, the protein debate's just an interesting one, just because it's so tied in this. Um, you know, this is evolutionary. I always liked. Um, we had, um, got uh, Tara Swart. Uh, she's a, a you know UK Oxford uh, PhD and actually an MD, and uh, she wrote a great book called The Source. And so we've had her on a couple of times and she made a great point uh, as, as we were kind of you know prepping for the podcast, she was putting that in a new book and she was on our podcast and she's trying to figure out why she's on the strength conditioning podcast. And as we're trying to like connect a little bit, uh, she made a comment and I, uh, I, I made basically made another one about, um, you know, uh, those like something about the memories, which if you read clan of the cave bear, you remember they talked about like, you know, the Neanderthals had big foreheads because they, they survived on memories. Whereas like Daryl Hannah was a different one. I made a comment about those guys have the memories and she's like, clan of the cave bears, one of my favorite books. I'm like, me too. So we kind of connected on that, but she made an interesting point where she goes, you know, we didn't evolve to eat meat. We evolved because we ate meat. Right. And she's like, you know, at some point we had a common ancestor. You know, and, uh, you know, there was a long time belief that something happened, drove half out to the, out to the plains and mm -hmm. the rest stayed in, uh, the forest. And that was the kind of the, the, the splitting. But then when they found the common ancestor, which was Andy and Artie, and I, this was unique to me because, uh, that was funded in Berkeley and it came out in the daily cow when they had found whatever those, those bones were. And then years later, like 10, 15 years later, they finally came out with a documentary about it. And I was so excited because I remember when it happened in the daily cow and what was wild is when they found Andy and Artie. Um, they were found with fossilized bat droppings, which means that they were in uh, a rainforest. And so they kind of dispelled the myth with, uh, you know, the common ancestor goes out to the plains. Why did they stand up? Probably looking for danger. And then they move from, you know, the quadruped to the biped. And, you know, their only theory was like, why, why did they stand up? And so um, it was just an interesting point that she said, you know, we didn't evolve to eat meat. We evolved because we ate meat, the DHEA and this and went through the whole process. And she's like evolutionary. Like this is still within our genes and within our codes. We're the only species that believes that we can act in contrary to what allowed us to evolve to who we are today. And uh, she's super, yeah, she's super sharp. If, um, yeah. Somebody we should get on this podcast. I, I understand the the ideology around limiting meat consumption. I think, you know, the, the destruction of the planet is, is pretty clear. I'm a, I'm a fisherman. And so I study the rivers to understand, you know, their history and what the species, how they behave and, you know, in the last hundred years, at least in Texas, we've lost like 80% of the river species in these Texas rivers, primarily because we're taking so much water out of the rivers in the, in the north and the northwest to water the corn, to feed the cows, to feed the people, right? And so, and, and the rivers is just one example. But so I, I, I get the ideology, but I think, you know, there was a documentary, whatever it was called, that was very famous and controversial around, uh, plant-based diets and plant-based protein. Oh, was this um, Game Changers? Game Changers, right? And it was a great documentary. I know it's riddled, it riddled with errors and misinformation. Bullshit, but it yeah. was done in such an amazing way that it, 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 I mean, if you didn't know. It was very well done. Yeah. Um, but again, full of shit. And it's like, okay, you have this, you have this purpose you're trying to serve, which is let's eat less meat to save the planet. I get it. But then you totally undermine yourself by making a documentary that's riddled with bullshit. And so now people are saying, well, fuck it. I'm just going to eat meat again. But uh, the issue comes down to, and this is from Rob uh, Wolf and uh, Diane uh, Rogers book, Sacred Cow. Um, the only way to heal the earth is through the spreading of rudiments. I mean, these animals, what they do is they eat, eat grass. They continue to go. They shit and they poop. Uh, you know, ground nesting birds come in. They break up the poop. 
they shit nitrogen and that's how you rebuild the soil. It's a very simple process. The problem is if we don't actively have a market where, you know, there's something to a reason to raise these animals, people aren't going to invest in them. They're just going to die off and we're not, we're basically going to kill our planet. So you don't almost need to, you know, enter things into the cycle. Cause here's the deal we've found in markets and you know, it's better than anybody. If there's not a vested interest in a way to make money off it, people are not going to invest in it. And it just so happens the only way we're going to heal the earth is by investing into, you know, uh, you know, like I said, uh, you know, these, these large grazing animals, these rudiments that literally this is what they do. And if there's not a market to be able to eat them or do something, what are we going to do? Just like let them go. I mean, you know, the years of uh, 70 million Buffalo roaming this country doesn't exist. No, and, it's behind us now. you know, yeah. And you know, the U S government went in cause we had to, you know, get rid of the red man. So what do we do? We killed off their food source, which if you read that part of the book, which is in uh, Steve Ranella's, um, uh, American Buffalo book. I mean, we systematically killed off that food source, which was the reason that America became such like such a rich. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so you had 70 million Buffalo that were moving around and on the outside were wolves who basically picked off all the weak ones and created this just like super version of these. And everywhere those things went, they shit and they pissed, soaked the land. They moved thousands of gram nesting birds came in, broke it all up nitrogen and that's why the uh the ground is so fertile because of that and, and if you look at uh I, I just learned this on a podcast maybe um, in the last month or so um the the green of the earth has actually increased by 30 percent in the past 100 years that's awesome the entire planet 30 percent more, more green. like is, yeah. is there's more vegetation grass and, and trees well do you know what they 30 percent do, do you know why they quit uh what they quit that too there's a nasa study is it because uh higher um higher CO2 well levels? They're, they're saying higher co2 but which it's also it's also the ruminants man it has to be yeah. because we're we're you know we're farming you know we're we're raising these things well, and uh, and, and the planet to, still has their normal amount and we're uh, raising them in excess what's that idiot politician with the big chin who's like the the uh environmental czar who flies around on his jet just fucking um, john Kerry. Yeah, oh, john, john Kerry. i yeah. fucking hate john Kerry. yeah and i'm sorry i didn't mean to say that on Sanct this podcast sanctimonious but, oh, dude he, man he got up and they were talking about climate like, change well like levels of co2 and that you know scientists say it has to be at this and we're at this and the guy got up and he was like you know uh 400 years ago this is what it was and you know they've gone back and done it and like at the time when the earth was most fertile this is what it was like why are we saying this is a bad thing well these scientists all agree and i'm like yeah there were also 50 x uh, you know, central intelligence officers that signed a letter that said the higher uh, Hunter Biden laptop deal it's, it's was, easy to, was it's, Russian, uh, you know, disinformation. And then all of a sudden I'm watching that driving out or uh, this morning I'm watching this on the TV where like came out and that whole thing was fabricated. So like, how are we supposed to believe any of this stuff? It, it's, it's easy to get scientific consensus when you censor all of the ones who don't agree, yeah, that's <laughs> you know, right. and that's, and that's what's happened in a lot of this, you know, um, I do like the uh, little sake glasses. Yeah, these are. Uh, so my buddy Matt these is are actually copitas. So my, my buddy's Matt is actually taking his wife over to Desert Door today for lunch. Awesome. And he, he had me up. He's like, "Hey, do you and your wife want to go on a double date? We'll go over to Desert Door and have some drinks in this for Cinco de Mayo." And I was like, "I would, other than the fact that I'm going to be sitting here with Judd, who is yeah. the co-founder for it, and, uh, maybe another time." It's uh, it's one of the nicest tasting rooms you'll ever go to. It's a it's a great place to spend the day. So I'm glad they're going. It's in Driftwood for those of you listening. You better go check it out. 
All right. Well, we uh, ended up on John Kerry and um, <sighs> politics, so let's steer it back. Although that's fun. Maybe we have time to go back to politics at the end. Um, I want to talk about just what is required to build muscle, and I know it's really complex. Back to your point on you can be massive, you can be strong, yeah. you can be functional, all these different things. But well, what what you need is you need a stimulus. So yeah. you have to understand the stimulus to build muscle. Because, Let's talk about that. Well, unfortunately, muscle is extremely expensive, right? It's, it's hard to cultivate. It's hard for your body to maintain. That's like if you were to take somebody and all of a sudden put them in. Which is how you knew the liver king was bullshit. Oh. Your body's an efficient, an efficient machine. It's only going to build muscle if it has to. Yeah. It's better to be as small as possible and be able to do the work. Yeah. Because then that's less energy demands for yeah. you. Yeah. And, and it's just very expensive. So, like, if you look at. Uh, that's why know, I'm 185. It's all it's any part of, of my strategy. And, and anything from starvation. Like, uh, if you put somebody into a starvation mode, the first thing the body does is it consumes all the muscle. Because it's the most expensive and it'll live the, the, you know, the shortest amount of time on muscle. It'll live the longest on fat. So the idea that you're going to starve away your fat sources has never made sense. Any of the starvation stuff, muscle is by far the most expensive thing to maintain. That's why when I was, um, you know, 270. And, and also because it's very metabolically active. Yes. Right. So uh, apart from your liver, it's the nest, it's the net, well, exercised muscle. If you aren't moving, then not so much. But yeah, it, apart from your liver, it's the most uh, metabolically expensive. Yep tissue in your body call it an organ yeah and so your 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 fat not very expensive metabolically just kind of sits there yeah but um you know because it's so metabolically demanding to do it your body doesn't naturally just grow that's when people are like oh i I put on muscle so easily i'm like really how is that because i've never met anybody like that so uh if you need to put on muscle obviously you need a stimulus right which is going to look like consuming some form of food so you're going to need some form of caloric surplus. You're going to need a high protein diet because it's very difficult. And uh, people are always like, oh, you know, you just need a caloric surplus. I- I've never seen anybody carry a large amount of muscle that didn't consume a high protein diet. So now if you look at bodybuilders, for example, right, I've looked at, uh, uh, I've trained with bodybuilders. I know a lot of bodybuilders. And I think what they've done is figured out the way to carry the most amount of muscle that humans have ever carried. Now you can say performance enhancing, whatever, um, all that stuff's available to the whole world. So there's a lot of people that take uh, anabolics that you would never guess that they do just because they don't look like they do because they don't know how to train. But the one thing that bodybuilders have figured out is how to carry a lot of amount of muscle. Uh, every one of them eats a high protein diet. I've seen guys do low carb, high fat, high protein, high protein, uh, low carb or uh, high carb, low fat. I mean, every combination you've ever seen, the prerequisite is always high protein. So it's very difficult to carry a lot of muscle without a high protein diet. Yeah, If, if you're going to build muscle, that's the only place that's the only thing you can build it from, right? You can't can't build a muscle out of carbohydrates. You have to build it out of amino acid. Yeah, but protein. What, what those do though is, yeah. um, if you look at the eighties, you, you can main you can maintain muscle mass because if you go don't go into a caloric uh, caloric deficit, uh, then you then your body won't consume your muscles to get amino acids, right? Um, you know, as long as you're eating enough protein. But uh, if you're if if you're uh, so you can maintain muscle without eating a high protein diet, but you can't yeah. grow muscle. You can't build muscle without a high protein diet. Yeah. We've seen, um, you know, there's kind of a, a internet kind of Yeti or folklore, the idea that you can lose fat and gain muscle at the same time. And you'll hear people go, no, you can't 100% you can't. If you eat a high protein diet and caloric restriction and lift weights, like I teach people in power athlete, you can gain muscle and lose fat at the same time. Uh, it's just, we, we've done it over and over again. Every but, client I've ever had. 
but it allows you have to eat a high protein diet and you have to lift in such a way that stimulates this. And I think what happens is to go to a place that you've never been, you have to do something you've never done. Yep. So it's a lot easier. You know, I was at one point, 280 pounds of lean, 282 pounds of lean muscle. So for me to put on muscle and get back to it is not as difficult as it was to get to that point. So it just, oh yeah, 100% it does. But, but at the end of the day, my goal, uh, even though I go train as if I'm trying to put on muscle every day, I know that if I can just maintain my lean body mass forever, I'll be fine. So, I mean, what I did in my twenties, uh, I don't have to try to go out and hammer and pick and chisel out new stuff. I just need to be able to maintain what I have. What sort of rates, I know it varies from person to person based on your, your, your biology and genetics, but what kind of rates of gain um, can people expect if they go on a program like one that you guys would suggest? Uh, it depends on age. Um, so I, if I had like, let's, factor, yeah, so the biggest factor is age. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, things like uh, volume, intensity. Nice. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, do you have favorable engine profile? You know, some people are just wired up a little bit different. Um, are you doing a training program that has the right mix of volume and intensity that allows you to, comp- uh, you know, progress? We found very earlier, uh, very early on with beginners or people that were first exposed to a barbell, using a basic linear progression with fixed volume allowed people to put on a ton of muscle very quickly. And we can get really that initial adaptation is really pretty powerful to the point. What, where What's they, a ton of muscle? What do you mean? Um, they can put on, you know, like if I were to say like two pounds a month of muscle, I mean, that's not on, you know, if, if over the course of uh, a year, a relatively untrained 17 year old kid. Yeah. I was going to say it has to be a pretty untrained yeah, guy. Yeah, like anywhere yeah. from like 14 to 16 pounds. Uh, we've seen that done in a year now, obviously as you age and then all of a sudden when you tailor off from this beginner into this intermediate, more advanced, it becomes very difficult. And all of a sudden you're at the point where, you know, you're in your twenties and if you can put on one or two pounds of muscle a year, now all of a sudden, Hey, you're looking pretty good. So what people end up doing is they end up bulking, which means they just are consuming mass amount of calories and realize I can put on lean body mass with fat at the same deal. It's very difficult to just put on lean body mass. Um, so that's why for a lot of the kids, we just try to get them as big and strong as possible. And then if they need to cut later on, it's a lot easier for me to have you spend 20 years trying to get as big and strong as you can and then cut you down more so than do this like very incremental micro bulk. So, and, and that's assuming that their, you know, that their fitness and uh, aesthetic goals are aligned with weightlifting and they're not like ultra marathon runners or something, which is a, it's a different, that's a different ball of wax. Um, it's a different different training adaptation and and to them actually the the thing to the thing to for those guys to track is their carbohydrates um because you know once they deplete their carbohydrates they're going to start consuming their muscles so well that's also glycogen in the cell yeah Uh, if you go look this has always fascinated me um if you go back and look at any of the 80s bodybuilding magazines any of the time the huge bodybuilders they were consuming like 800 a thousand grams of carbohydrates a day and these dudes are absolutely swole yeah and uh, you know, you don't see that today in the same way. And I wonder if it comes down to maybe the quality of the food or just the fact that people got so scared of carbohydrates. Like I, I've met so many people that have such a death afraid of, of carbs lately. I'm like, dude, you need carbs to grow. It's very oh. difficult. All of the research I've seen with ketogenic diets, it's very easy to lean or maintain lean muscle mass with a ketogenic diet. Uh, I think it's very, very difficult to put on muscle with a ketogenic diet. And I tried for a number of years. Yeah. We had to use carb cycling to get it to work. Yeah. And, 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 and there's different, and there's certain activity levels that just don't lend themselves to ketogenesis either. You know, like if you're, 
you know, if, if, if you're a power lifter or an Olympic lifter or you're a shot putter, you know, maybe even a sprinter, like, okay, maybe because it's just a few seconds of activity, you know? Um, and if you're an endurance athlete, like an ultra endurance athlete, and you don't need a whole lot of anaerobic pop, you know, or, uh, um, those guys do well in ketogenesis. But, uh, if you're like an intermediate kind of, if you're whatever soccer player, or like a field sport kind of athlete or something like that, um, or, you know, a martial artist or something, um, and you, you need that glycogen, you need, you need that blood glucose, you need those carbohydrates to be able to, to, uh, you know, have that, um, power and explosiveness on demand. Um, but also what people don't think about what, well, I don't read a lot about, um, and you know, when the, when science hits the, the mainstream media and lay audience, it, it always gets perverted anyway. But something I don't hear much about is, uh, and, and you've experienced this is just like the, the cognitive, emotional, uh, pain threshold and yeah. perceived effort of being on a ketogenic diet. You know, yeah. it's just like, you just don't feel as good. You know, it's like, like my, my mood is fine and my cognition is fine, but it's like, things just seem a little harder. It's not huge, but it's, if I was competing as an athlete and I wanted to be the absolute best I could be, I, I wouldn't want to feel like that, you know, cause they, uh, there's just a little lag to it. So when I first came in the NFL, um, I ended up getting hurt my rookie year. I came in and started in up rushing a patellar tendon. And I was on IR the rest of the year. He said, hey, you'd probably never run again. You'll never play football again. So always like, all right, now what do we do? So I had this goal. I wanted to rehab to be the best that I could. And at the time, I had a supplement uh, deal with a guy named Mauro De Pasquale. And Mauro is really the father of carb cycling. If you look, look him up, he's anything that you see that looks like low, high, you know, ketogenic, whatever, came from Morrow and his original work. Um, everybody else, like the Martin Brookstroms and everybody that looks like carb cycling at all, came from Morrow's work. So Morrow did my original diet, and we did a cyclical ketogenic diet that looked like carb cycling. You know, I didn't eat uh, carb for 21 days. It was, um, you know, Vince Garanda's Stone Age diet, a high-protein, high-fat, no-carb diet. We did that for 21 days, and then we did the first carb refeed, and we ended up bulking. I ended up getting from... I think I was like 305. I went to 326 Damn. in off season. And I was the biggest and strongest I ever was, but I was way too big. And he's like, no problem. We changed the calories. We changed the workout. We changed everything. And I showed up at camp that next year at like 306 at like sub 10% body fat. And uh, pretty That's much awesome. that year at 23 completely changed me physically to the person that you see today that I've been able to maintain for the last 20 plus years. Um, wow. the, the dieting tricks, the, the muscle, the strength, like everything that we did at that 23, 24 year old kid laid the foundation for the rest of my life. It taught me how to diet. It taught me how to eat. It taught me the value of protein. It taught me the value of how to train and lift weights. And to the point where our young fighters and some of the people that I work with, I do the exact same thing that I did because they're at that right time where all of a sudden it hits it. But I learned very early on that, uh, submaximal efforts produce submaximal gains that we were going to have to constantly push one rep past one rep past one rep past. Um, you know, used a ton of compensatory acceleration, which is as mechanical advantage increases. So to speed, um, use a lot of plyos, a lot of dynamic work. You know, there was just a lot of like being able to overreach is how I ended up getting big and strong. I never like, I never got there leaving one rep in the tank, leaving, you know, two reps in the tank. And I think it uh, it paid dividends. It allowed me to do something for over a decade or for a decade that not a lot of people get to do. And um, it's been uh, very interesting to see. There's so much. I mean, I mean, the internet is, and especially social media podcasts, 
I mean, everything, there's so much information out there, but at the end of the day, um, you got to eat enough calories to sustain what you're looking to do. And if you want to put on muscle, um, that just doesn't come and it's not cheap. So you got to be willing to do what somebody else isn't to be able to attain it. And then, you know, obviously the supplementation, if you're micronutrient deficient, like we can talk about testosterone, like what do you need? Zinc, magnesium, iron, copper, selenium. I mean, you need all those elements to build testosterone. Uh, and I think without the micronutrients, you're really just dragging a sled, a sled uphill. Yeah, you're not going to go far. Yeah. I'm also the longest continuous creatine user on the planet. <laughs> 14 years old. Nice. 1990. How do you how do you take creatine? When when do you do it? <laughs> so do use it? Uh, old man George Angus, who was the old power lifter that trained us, he had a health food store. And he came in, he gave us all these bottles of something. They were all in white label, like nothing on them. He's like, take a teaspoon of this morning and night. And we started taking creatine when I was 14. And I've taken uh, a teaspoon in the morning and a teaspoon at night for over 30 plus years. And uh, I really think, you know, and even though people are like, oh, I don't know if creatine really has as big a benefit for muscle 100%. I think it does. Um, the research is uh, yes and no. And, you know, but the problem is that we were talking about research. Every time I read something. It's all subjective. But the one thing that's not subjective is the cognitive effect. Um, you know, what it's doing in terms of starving off Alzheimer's, ATP, uh, just the neuroprotective. Oh sure. my God, it, it's huge. And, and as far as like, as far as like, uh, maintaining, uh, somewhat sedentary muscle mass, there's no, there's no question. The research is, yep. the research is very clear on that too. Uh, yep. you'll maintain muscle mass way better. And interestingly, if omega threes, I'm not really sure why maybe membrane, uh, membrane permeabilities, uh, membrane strength, uh, pliability, I think, um, that, that applies more to women than men, but it applies to both. Well, we found, um, I'm going to pull it up, but uh, there was one of, one of the guys who's in uh, one of my block one coaches has a PhD and they're doing research in his lab on, uh, where is it? Um, on supplements and they found what is the biofactor in krill oil. It's like Astra, I can't remember what the supplement, but they found is like 100% beneficial for, for building muscle. So, you know, uh, essential amino acid, I mean, um, uh, fish oil, uh, krill oil, 100% much better in terms of building muscle. Hmm. So I, I was talking about maintaining sedentary muscle, like in, in elderly populations and, uh, hospitalized patients and stuff like that. We know that, um, creatine maintains muscle mass when you're not exercising. Um, and I said omega threes too. What about BCAAs for this for the same purpose? Uh, if you are eating a high protein diet, it's like, um, yeah, it's already in there. It's like I throwing, take them when I fast. It's it's like throwing a bucket of water into a lake. Yeah, uh, it, like I I think the supplement companies did a really good job of selling BCCAs. Um, I think if you're eating a high protein diet, I just don't see the benefit. And if you're going to take them, I think maybe essential amino acids are probably a better thing to do it. I just wouldn't waste my money on it. Uh, I've, you know, and we, we did it for years. There was an idea that, especially if you were fasting about 10 years ago, we got really, really into this fasting thing. And when we looked at all the meta analysis, it really just looked like a fancy way to do caloric restriction. Um, only within the last year or so has new research come out that shows some cognitive benefits, but the cognitive benefits, or I'm sorry, the physiological benefits for fasting really much more had to do with the fact that you weren't eating within an hour of waking and you were eating two hours or your last meal was two hours before bedtime. Yeah. So the fasting, like when they looked at all the research, they found all these positive effects, but like the length of fast didn't really matter as long as you weren't eating within an hour of waking and your last meal was two hours before you go to sleep. 
So there wasn't a big difference between six and four and eight, as long as you adhere to that hour before and that two hour after. The, the prolonged fasting is ever more important as you get older because they'll clear out senescent cells. Yeah. yeah. I've read that research. So I've started, I fast every new moon. This is how I sync it up. I'll do at least a 36 hour fast and it's hard, but by the end of it, man, I feel fucking awesome. I don't know what it is, but I feel fantastic. So would you so do that once a month? A, yeah. Once a month, every yeah. new moon. Cortisol, epinephrine, cortisol, epinephrine, and norepinephrine. So stress hormones, um, which get released when you're starving. That's why you feel great. So it's kind of working your way towards the fight or flight pathway, you know? Yeah. What about uh, protein quality? So, you know, certainly uh, high quality eggs, for example, the, the taste is, is, yeah. is way better than your, your cheaper eggs. The same is true with meat. But what have you guys seen in your experience in terms of the quality of protein with respect uh, to muscle gain? Does, does it make a big so, difference? So there's a guy named uh, Peter Fowlerstedt. And uh, do you remember Peter? He's like the world's leading forage agronomist. So he spoke at the Ancestral Health Symposium uh, the year that I did, and we had him on the podcast. And uh, I was really wrapped around the axle on this idea of, you know, grass-fed meat. And oh, then, yeah. I remember you telling me about this podcast. Yeah. yeah. So we, yeah. Um, you know, and it, it was just kind of a, paleo common talking point at the time where it's like oh you know the value of grass-fed meat versus grain-fed and this and um it just uh it, it was a very convenient narrative and one that was very easy to just expound and so i had uh you know we we're at ancestral health symposium and had peter ballerstead on and uh he got up and he gave this incredible talk where it's like you know what, like, um, ideally you would like to eat it from grass fed, pasture raised, you know, local organic things because it supports the you know local ecosystem. But if it comes down to it, like the better question is, are you eating meat? And once you answer yes, now we can start taking these branches down because if you're, if you're eating math, uh, um, fats for omega threes, you know, one or two walnuts is going to kill that. If you're eating it for this and they did, uh, and you know, his job is pretty interesting and then he travels the world looking for the most nutrient dense grass on the planet and they take seeds, they go back and they give it to ranchers who grow it and then feed it to their rudiments. And then what they do is they slaughter the animals and then they look at the meat content. And he's like, there's not really a big difference between what's at the supermarket for the, you know, uh, grain fed. When you look at like, obviously the pasture raised and the grass fed, it's, you know, more favorable, but it's not that different. And, you know, it's going to be very difficult to feed, you know, this amount of people. So personally though, bro, there's, there's toxins and chemicals, right? That's 100%. Yeah. Right. Now you get into uh roundup and then, I mean, there's a million other things, but like, it really is just to comes down to, are you eating meat? If the answer is yes, then you can go on. Personally, I think the grass fed tastes better. I like oh, it. There's no question it's about leaner, it. It's leaner. The fact that I can cook it faster and like, you know, if I had the same amount of heat for like a big uh, grain fed steak versus a grass fed, it's no night and difference. I think the taste better. Um, but I also like the taste of Buffalo, which is, you know, they don't do feedlots for Buffalo. So uh, I also like the fact to be able to go visit the ranches. Um, there's some amazing places like Augustus ranch down here in Texas. It's about 90 minutes away. I drive down there and I pick up boxes from them. And, uh, I think that their meat is probably the best I've ever had. That's who all the salt and time gets their meat from. Mm -hmm. And it's just some of the best in the world. So yeah, Peter really just kind of, I had this preconceived notion and then he came on and he's like, uh, Hey, here's the truth. And I think, the, I think it's more the hormones and the antibiotics uh, that matter, and, and that you know that there there's definitely solid science behind that because you know you are you are affecting 
your gut biome with those antibiotics and you are affecting your hormones with the hormone in the meat and the and the pesticides right you can't you yeah. can't get rid of herbicides and pesticides through any sort of processing dude right. and so when you eat that meat or if you drink an alcohol like most whiskeys most tequilas that shit's sprayed with yeah. pesticides you can't get rid of that through distillation so you end up ingesting that on your meat or in your drink and then that's what fucks you up but interesting to know that the the quality of protein doesn't really have much of an effect yeah yeah in so terms pure, of how that purely from that so i mean the and the reason we got into this discussion was uh you know we were trying to uh, we did a whole series. It was like bulking on a diet. This guy hit me with a question like, Hey, I have, I think it was like 20 bucks a day to spend on food. Can I get, you know, big and strong off of 20 bucks? So we went back and took 20 bucks and went out and figured out that like the most, uh, nutrient dense food you could consume is organ meats. Um, yeah. you can go get ground meat in here. And we basically did the, the, the experiment That's great. and we're able to consume, I think it was like 225 grams of protein and eat a nutrient dense diet on 20 bucks a day it, organ meat organ meat was the was the big awesome yeah it was like tongue it was uh, uh babacoa um obviously liver kidneys which i absolutely despise um i i try to cook kidneys. kidneys yeah uh but i'm a huge fan of pate like that is like that's yeah my in life. in moderation i brought some liver back uh from a hunt this year to my kids my wife was like i don't know I made some tacos deer yeah. liver dude the kids fucking loved it uh, we do hearts. So I get Buffalo hearts. Yeah. And then what I do is I throw them in the crock pot for 24 hours. Oh, hearts. Great. And then I cook it again for 24 hours, oh. continuous for two days. It turns basically into this like stringy mush. And then I cut it up and I make heart tacos. And, uh, my wife's like, don't tell them, don't tell them. I'm like, I gotta tell you them. gotta tell them. And then they're like, I'm like, it's heart. And they're like, all of a sudden they're like on their fourth one. Like, these are so good. They're like, Ugh. I'm like, Nope, keep eating them. I'm gonna eat all this heart. Yeah. You got to teach them now. That's the good stuff. Yeah. All right. We're going to open it up to audience questions we've got some coming in if you're out there listening um send them in and we'll and we'll take a look um will do you got any any questions right now ready to go we just had one so far that i've been thinking about why isn't calories in versus calories out the biggest factor calories in calories out why isn't that the biggest factor we kind of touched for, on this for what yeah for weight weight gain well, I mean, ideally, you get all your calories. You get all your calories from Snickers bars. That's why. Yeah. Um, so it, it's not just, you know, fuel partitioning matters a ton. So what, 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 you, what your body does with a carbohydrate or protein or fat, that like that's driven by how well you're resting and all that, but it, and and how hard you're training, what type of training you're doing. But if you're not eating the right uh, combinations of macros, then you 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 can't partition in the right way to build muscles. If you're eating like all carbohydrates uh, or all fat, then you, you know, you don't have the substrate to build muscle with. Yeah. I mean, uh, Lane Norton was a big, you know, uh, really the proponent between calories in calories out. And uh, I think in terms of creating fat loss and making smaller people, it makes sense. Um, we've seen people diet on, you know, beer and potato chips and beef jerky and lose weight. Uh, it would now, but when you start talking about putting on muscle, like I said, muscle is extremely expensive and I have yet to seen any professional bodybuilder come out and be like, I ate zero protein. I ate nothing but a high carb, high fat diet. And, uh, now I'm standing up on stage at three, 4% body fat, regardless of the drugs. Um, I just haven't seen it. I mean, not to say that there's not somebody out there, but until I meet somebody who I can legitimately say, Hey, dude, this guy. I, ate I, a, I don't know how you could trigger the process of making can't. muscle without leucine. I mean, you, you can't. And you have to have the essential amino acids. You, you have to be eating it. So it, yeah. 
like it, it you have to have the right portion. But you, portion. You and, also, and if you're just trying to train muscle, like if you're trying to be an, an athlete, but not necessarily gain muscle, um, you know, protein might not be the metric for you, but you should, you know, you should still go for probably, you know, one, probably 1. 1.4, what, one point, what, one, say one and a half uh, grams per kilogram. Um, yeah, we do one gram per pound of, uh, per pound of body weight, but I, I'm just, man, um, I have yet to personally, um, you know, high protein diet is, is kind of a non-negotiable for me. Yeah. Um, whether you're following, like, I don't care, you know, I've always said, dude, a high protein diets and non-negotiable, how you want to skin carbohydrates and fats is going to be based upon you as the individual and your taste. And I've seen in your activities and yeah. your activities. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you're a high motor dude, you're going to have to probably eat some more carbs, eat a little less fat. I've also run into people that tend to do better on less fat, and more carbs. And I've met other people that do better on less carbs and more fat. And so what we do is we start everybody on what I call isocaloric, which is a high protein diet with balanced carbohydrates and fats, which is cuts into thirds. And then from there, we just kind of see where they go. Um, if you're over 20, 25, 30% body fat, I usually put everybody on a high protein diet, low carb, higher fat diet. Then as their body fat comes down, I found that I can get to a balance. Let's say around 18, 17, 18, 20%. I get to an isocaloric. And then as we continue to come down, if I get somebody under 10% body fat or I get somebody at 12 that wants to get under 10, I have to drop the fat and off the carb. So mm. it almost becomes the more muscle you carry in relation to body fat because muscle is extremely insulin sensitive fats extremely oxidative so the leaner you get the more carbohydrate you can handle so i've never seen personally never seen any, uh, i've never dieted anybody personally i've never dieted under my under 10 percent uh with a low carb diet i've always yeah. had to switch to a higher carb low fat diet to get under 10 percent. yeah that, that makes sense to me um i think as we age we lose there was an interesting uh, a bunch of research and there's a book out of Australia and I can't remember the researcher uh, and her, her contention was as we age, we lose the ability to process carbohydrate. So uh, there, there should be some periodization with carbohydrates and fats as we age. I, I would, and I would think that that has a lot to do with activity, though. activity and muscle. Yeah. So, so if you maintain muscle mass yeah. and maintain activity, that's your GLUT4 receptors are, that's the primary yeah. uptake of, of glucose. Yeah. So when you don't exercise, you you know, that you're, you can, I mean, you, you can take somebody 65 years old, um, and you know, whatever they get injured or whatever, for, for some reason they sit around for two weeks, they'll become pre-diabetic in yeah. like two weeks and totally healthy person that is normally out, you know, working, doing their garden, whatever, and, you know, out, out doing basically 20,000 steps a day or something. And you can, uh, you know, put them, put them in a bed for two weeks, they'll be pre-diabetic and it'll take them six months to recover from that. Yeah, no, um, um, it's hard to build that back. <laughs> well, yeah, I think it's activity level and it's effort. There's community and some other things we've discussed. Like for example, today I trained from six to seven 30, went down and got a coffee, came back at eight and had my fighters and trained with them until almost nine 45 and do my best to try to kill them and then shot over here. And, you know, I mean, it's just like, I think it's a function of community training. What are you doing? The one thing that I think we've done very well in power athlete is created a group of like-minded individuals that are searching and training for performance and supporting each other in the process. And I think, um, you know, not everybody's got to train like you're going to try to kick every door off the, off the hinges, but I think everybody should. And, uh, I think that, you know, as long as, and, and I, I think the one thing that Dwayne, the rock Johnson has done really well is to let us know that over the age of 50, you can attain your best physique. Like, I, you know, you can bitch With... about the drugs. 
you, uh, I want to know what he's taking uh, yeah, I because mean, I'm, I, I'm they, not kidding you, dude. He, I, uh, the Rock. Um, when when I was in Philadelphia, uh, Tommy Canavy was our strength coach. He was his strength coach at Miami, so he would come train with us every time he was in Philly. So we got to know him real, real well. Uh, the Rock that we trained with, compared to what I see today over the age of fifty, like two fucking different human beings. Like he looked like kind of just a. Uh, I don't want to say lunchy, but like he wasn't, I mean, he was yeah, in, I, in shape. Even when he was a wrestler. Yeah. Right. He well, that's when, when, he, when we met him. Yeah. He wasn't that. Well, he tone. was in his twenties. So yeah. he was in his late twenties, early thirties. I mean, real, realistically, uh, I remember we went into lift weights and he was like, shit, if I could be as big as you are. I mean, and, uh, I was like, well, you know, like you, do you want me to help you do that? Uh, but now I see figured him. that out. Yeah. I mean, I, I know like he had enough. surgery on his pecs. You talked about that yeah, publicly, so but he, he hasn't really shared what he's what his secret is well, on he, supplementation or he whatever had some uh, some kind of camastia that yeah. they ended up cleaning up because you could see it a little bit. So I mean, obviously, which is equated with you know an, anabolic steroids. Yeah. So I mean, he probably did at some point, um, but you see him now, and like I, I watched, right, he uh, looks incredible. What, he's 50, like fifty four or something. Yeah, we we watched Black Adam on an airplane he, out yeah, to he California. Amazing in that, and movie. my son was like, like. He looks like a legit superhero. And I'm like, dude, that's not CGI. That's how he looks. Well, but he went to his trainer and he said, I want to have a physique that looks like the classic Marvel comic superhero. How do we build that? And like that was their one year program. It's it just creating that. Well, he's yeah. Samoan and black. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you're talking about the, great genetics, like the greatest yeah. meeting of genetics. I mean, the only thing is they can maybe throw some Filipino in there. So I've, I've always joked that Rafael Ruiz, who, who trained me in the NFL is Filipino. Like those are the master race. Like Roth was stronger, faster, and like could move better. And then I like meet all like his buddies were the same. And I'm like, damn it. So you got the Rock who's got genetics of like Samoan and black. I mean, he has the genetics for it. He has the the financial ability to like iron paradise and the whole thing. Yeah. Um, you know, whether or not, I mean, he's obviously taken something I would I would be ignorant to say he hasn't. But also, there's no way to well, equate. There's, there's no doubt he's disciplined. He's but, working hard. He's doing the, things right. Yeah. But I, I mean, somebody's I, planning his meals. I think his the, training. I think I, research bores out. You, you don't. It's very well. It's very no hard re, at fifty. There's no research to show that anybody can put on muscle after, say, like forty, early forties. You know, uh, I, it's like I, with, well, with without some yeah. sort of. You know, pharma pharmacological intervention. Yeah, they they say yeah. after the age of forty, you lose what was it like one percent a year of muscle. But, but I but that's on average for yeah for people for that don't people train. that don't move around. Yeah. So you can slow that down a lot. Well, I mean, I I go into the gym every single day, um, and every time we walk in the gym, I have a goal to set a PR either on a rep, like hey, for this machine last time we did six reps of this weight today, I'm trying to do seven, and if I hit ten reps. Then we add weight to the bar, or we add weight to whatever we're doing, and I start the fight over again. So I'm pretty disciplined with a journal where I go in, I know exactly what we're doing, and I know what I want to hit on that day. And if I hit that, then my day is a win. If I don't hit it, then I got to go back and find a new way to set a PR. And I find as long as I get a, a, a you know work towards a single extra rep or a heavier weight, then I'm quite, I'm effectively moving towards my goal, which is to maintain and try to put on as much muscle as I can as I age. That's an awesome philosophy, John. I love that. You reminded me of this chief I had when I was in the in the SEAL teams. His name was Manny Rangel. Did you ever know Manny? Hard as nails, dude. When I was in his platoon, he was 44. I was 24 and could run circles around me. And one day I asked him, I was like, what's your, you know, what's your secret? How are you doing this at your age? Like you're fucking, you're a beast. And he said, well, I earn my fucking 
trident, his seal insignia. He's like, I earn that thing every day. And I take that to heart. So every single morning, I'm trying to outdo what I did yesterday. And that's all I, that's all I do. And that was his approach. So very similar to what you're trying to do. Yeah. And no, I admire it's, that. It's, um, you know, and then what's nice is, uh, you know, my training partner is a former Division One collegiate wrestler. Um, the the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu kids I work with are all world champions. There's, you know, uh, Philippe who trained today, took second in pans. Um, you know, Arash and uh, Victor are down to Brazilian nationals. You know, Victor's going to compete in the ultra or in the, the open tomorrow on the ultra. I mean, he's one of the top ultras in the world. So, I mean, I'm really lucky in that the people that I'm training with, either within, you know, within the confines of power athlete or on the mat are some of the, the legit, you know, legit killers in the world. So, I mean, there's a really high level and um i think if you want to learn to swim fast and swim well you got to swim in deep waters and i think all too often we're so scared to put ourselves out of our comfort zone and um i have no problem with being you know outside my comfort zone and being able to you know ask myself to do things that i didn't think i'd be able to um i, I just think like fuck safe fuck comfort you know yeah, don't and, play and, it safe it's and i'm not lame. like into this like you know jocko or um david goggins where it's like no, you I gotta don't. you know, embrace your inner bitch i just think no, you that. have to push yourself into the deepest waters possible and uh, i did that through my nfl career we uh did a podcast yesterday with um joe thomas who just got into the hall of fame offensive lineman played for the cleveland browns and uh my heart broke for him a little bit when i realized he never played in a playoff game oh. and he never played on a winning team oh. i think maybe one year they had 10 wins his first year but every year after that never got to the playoffs in this and never got a chance to play against like the best, I mean, he got to go against James Harrison and all these, you know, rock stars, but he never got to go against them in the playoffs. He never got to go against them when he, he wasn't a Cleveland Brown. And I don't know if he ever got their best. Now he was a number three pick overall, played 11 years, um, you know, gets a chance to go to the Hall of Fame, but gets to go to the Hall of Fame having never played in a playoff game. And um, amazing dude, such a uh, awesome dude to connect with. But like my heart broke a little bit when I heard that. Because um, for me personally, I always wanted to stand on the biggest stage and play against the best player on his best day in front of everybody with nowhere to hide. And um, I got a chance to do that for a number of years. And I uh, was fortunate, fortunate to catch some of the best guys on their worst days, which I always hoped. I just wanted to catch the best guy on his worst day. But, um, you know, Joe was an amazing podcast and just an amazing dude. But uh, my heart broke a little bit for him where I was like, fuck, dude, you never got a chance to play because the bullets in the playoffs, especially in the NFC championship games and far into the playoffs, those bullets were faster than any other bullet. Sure. Everyone's playing at their at oh. their peak. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about that. Courage is what I think it is. And um, something I think about a lot. Most people, and I was this way for a long time myself, most people are really afraid back to back to your point john afraid to really put themselves out there right people will kind of you know push some limits here or there but people are really afraid to be seen for what they are and i think people like you people like you somehow have gotten have gotten past that fear that makes you want to just kind of turtle up and always play it safe and a couple of years ago i was honored to be asked to do a commencement speech at a high school and I, I said yes immediately, and then I had to go think about what the fuck am I going to say to these kids. So I went on a hike, which is where I go to think. And I thought, all right, what's what's my message to a graduating group of high school kids? Like, I, I don't know. And it was a hard thing. But where I landed in the title of the speech was, don't play it safe. 
I think that's the worst thing you can do if you want to die a really happy, joyful fucking person is always play it safe. Take that first job, you know, cho choose the easy major in college, take the first job you get and just kind of ride it out comfortably in luxury. But would love to hear kind of both of your thoughts on how people can can overcome that and how people can cultivate their courage to look inside themselves, see what is there, and then turn around and share that with the world. What do you think the difference is? Man, um, stupidity. <laughs> uh, I like, I'll just give you an example, right? So, I great, I, great answer. I got um, a ton of scholarship offers. Like, I can't remember, like, it was, I mean, if it was in a uh, hundred, it was, I, I mean, like, I got a, a lot of scholarship offers. And I remember going through all the schools um, and I ended up taking trips to SC, UCLA, Colorado, Nebraska, and Cal. And I went to Nebraska. And Nebraska was amazing. I would have chance to win a national championship and play on a really good team. And that was extremely like, important to me. Um, but then I remember as I was trying to make this decision, um, my dad, who really valued education, you know, graduated high school early or sorry. Yeah. Graduated high school at 16, graduated uh, undergrad at 19, graduated law school from USC and is like 21. I was a practicing attorney. I mean, one of the smarter people I've ever met in my life. And my dad was like, you know, football is just going to be a fleeting thing. It's something you're going to do for a short period of time. What degree do you want to hang on your wall? Where are you going to stress yourself? Is Nebraska a center for excellence? Do the smartest people in the world, you know, teach and have Nobel prizes at Nebraska? I mean, you're going to go there to play football. What happens if football doesn't work out? And on top of it, are you ever going to be challenged at that school? And I decided to go to Cal and go to Berkeley for one reason, for the fact that I knew every single day I was going to have to get up to be challenged. Now, Obviously, Pac-10 football, you know, whatever it is now, Pac-11, Pac-12, Pac-8, whatever. Um, you know, football was good, and there was guys that got a chance to go to the NFL. A lot of NFL players came out of out of Berkeley. Um, but when my dad made a good point where he's like, you need to go someplace where you are in deep water, where you go in and you're a little nervous every single day that you have to do the work. If it's too comfortable, you're never going to grow. And growth comes from discomfort. So I decided to go to Cal. Uh and I laugh now that if I knew I was going to play 10 years in the NFL, I probably would have gone somewhere else. But I also wouldn't replace that experience and going in and like three, four in the morning working on papers, you know, I mean, just having to like hustle and work and bust my ass to get that degree. And I graduated in four years, did my master's in my fifth year and then got drafted to go. And then my goal was to go to law school. And then that got derailed by playing a decade in the NFL. So um, uh, I think at least for me, there's always been a desire to know that like the biggest challenges, the biggest fish, whatever it is happens in the deepest water. So I need to push myself in there and that nothing good happens in the kiddie pool. So whether it be in college, playing in the NFL, um, you know, going over and, you know, like whatever it looked like, I just knew that was like, you know, the age old, like, um, what was it? Uh, uh, the media or the lollipop of mediocrity once one lick and you suck forever. Mm -hmm. So I just wasn't trying to be average. I wasn't trying to be mediocre. I didn't, you know, uh, I realized talking to Joe Thomas, I was never going to go to the hall of fame, but I also, when I show up at the hall of fame to see people, the guys that I know or the guys that I played against have a lot of respect for me because of the way that I played the game, that it was never played safe. That it was always played at a hundred miles an hour, hair on fire that I was going to light somebody up. And you played with a level of intensity that people admired. So I think you just have to have that passion Years ago, when I was in college, I read a book by Jeanette Winterson called The Passion. And uh, it was ex just extremely important to me at the time because it was about having passion in everything that you did. 
You know, there's a, did you ever see that? Um, what was the movie with uh, uh, Jeremy Piven and Serendipity? When he talks about at the very end with, um, I think it's Kate Beckinsale. Yeah, John, was John Cusack? Yeah, John, John Cusack. It's kind Kate of a romantic Beckinsale. comedy. Yeah, yeah. We always watch it around Christmas. Yeah. But Serendipity in the end, when Jeremy Piven's talking about writing his friend's obituary, he's like, the Greeks only asked one thing of a person. Did he live with passion? And then he goes in and he writes this guy's obituary. And uh, I just kind of took it like that. Like at the end of this thing, we're all going to be old. We're all going to be battered and bruised and beat up. But at the end of the day, did you do something meaningful and did you live with passion? I think is uh, is a great marker. So, yeah, anytime you're around somebody that's passionate, it doesn't matter what they're passionate about. You feel pretty fucking good hanging out with them. Yeah, and the exact opposite. If you're around somebody who's upset, sad, depressed, or just uptight, just uptight and uptight. like super squared away, like, and fuck off, man. It's just it's like the they're like dementors. You know, from yeah. Harry Potter's they just suck the life. Out they of do you. get away from those people, and yeah. they're everywhere. Yeah, and I think it. I think it boils down to self-love and it sounds like your your dad at least probably your mom too they let you know that you were loved and they showed you love by giving you some thoughtful fucking advice um i i would <laughs> venture to say no um well i uh like i was um i was not raised in a kind and gentle way at all well but that doesn't mean they didn't love the shit yeah. out of you the well, advice your dad gave you dude, that's a very thoughtful advice my dad and gave like, me a lot of fuck my dad gave me a lot of sage advice and um one of the saddest things for me was that when my dad passed away we no longer got to speak anymore you know like people are like oh i, I you know i miss my parents i miss my dad for the fact that uh we had such amazing conversation he was so impactful in my life but my mom when we were growing up um you know it's just a uh you know just very um not only just very present but very driven like my mom like people ask me about hard work and dedication and all that i'm like i learned it from my parents my mom is relentless. She still is. And it's yeah, just it's my like mom too. Her relentless nature is one of those things where it's like you're you either get on and get on board or you're just going to get steamrolled. And um, I learned that early on that like you just got to keep moving. My dad's analogy was like when you feel the wind, put your shoulder to the wind and just keep moving. Put your shoulder to the wind and just keep soldiering on. And um, that's how I've always done. When it, Whenever adversity comes, you know what I do? I just keep moving forward. You never stop. And it's just blind consistency. That's why I call it stupidity. Very humble. He prattled so long, I forgot the question. <laughs> Isn't that what old men do? Don't they prattle? Uh, the question was really around what what separates a person who um, who has the courage to to just just go for it and say, "Fuck it, I'm not going to play it safe. I'm not going to you know do do the safe thing, even though even though it's more comfortable. I'm gonna I'm gonna roll the dice or take some risks and you know put myself out there." Is there anything that you've seen that that is a big a big differentiator? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I'd I'd really like to say that you know, the only the only thing that matters is what you think of yourself and that you're doing the right thing and all the, and you love yourself and all that. And I, I think that's true, sort of in the second passage of life. Uh, but at the beginning, you know, you have to prove yourself to the world, and part of that is, you know, a big part of that's proving proving yourself to yourself um uh and and you know it, at some point hopefully um you become completely comfortable with who you are and what your capabilities are and what you're good at and what you're bad at and what you care about and what you don't care about and you let that be okay and that's when my life really came together i mean i think that's you know that's sort of you know that that whole second passage idea um to where i now no longer care what anybody thinks about me i get up and i do 
what I know I need to do. And, and, you know, my success, and I, and I said this on, on this podcast, uh, uh, when Mike first started this, um, you know, my success every day is like, did I have the courage to do the things I needed to do? And that doesn't necessarily mean I did anything heroic. It's just like, I did the shit I didn't want to do, you know, like, to, like, it's easy to avoid, to avoid this, avoid that. It's like, I don't really want to do that. I'm not super comfortable with that. I'll do that. I'll do that tomorrow. I'll do that the next day. Um, you know, and I, and so, you know, when I was younger, the things I needed to do were big things, you know, to like, now it's like, I need to like have a lecture coming up. I need to like, I need to prepare this lecture and send that like, I don't want to do it, but I'm, you know, but I'm going to do it because I, you know, uh, and, uh, and, you know, that's sort of from professional standpoint, but, uh, from a personal standpoint, I, I, I really think, um, <clears throat> what's changed my life for the better. Um, I, the courage that's mattered the most to me is, is, uh, is my relationships to have the courage to have every conversation that needs to be had. Um, and, uh, you know, my philosophy with, with my personal relationships is, is I, like, I literally don't want an hour to go by without, uh, having said what needs to be said, you know, having, my friends and my the people i'm related you know my my friends and family the people i care about for them to know what i how how much i care about them and what i think about them and that we get rid of any any bad blood because one thing you learn in our world is how how fragile life is and how quickly guys go and you know <laughs> you, you lose 50 or 60 guys you know and and, and 10 years like wow that's yeah. yeah i'm easily one of those guys you know they're just uh, there's no telling when it's going to happen. So, yeah, one of my favorite quotes is the meaning of life is that it ends. And, and I read that and it just, it always stuck with me. So yeah, thanks for sharing guys. It, um, wisdom, self-awareness, courage, protein. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's Cinco de Mayo. So we've talked a lot about protein and muscle gain, and now we're going to go eat a bunch of carbs and some margaritas okay. and destroy the day's gains. I like it. Uh, any any questions, Will, from the audience that we haven't gotten to? That, uh... Uh, we did have one from John. Sure, throw it on. What's the biggest lesson I learned from the NFL? Yeah. <sighs> Hard question. Um, largest lesson. Don't wear your pink jock strap under your, your white spandex. Oh, I wouldn't care about that. <laughs> um, I learned a, f a few things. Um, I learned early on, uh, I coined a, what I believe to be a very eclectic esoteric quote, which is in the absence of true leadership, false prophets appear. So what would happen early on in Philadelphia? I don't think that we had great leadership um, amongst the players. And when that happens, players start pontificating and people start becoming false prophets. We're going to do this. And they start making preposterous claims more so than like, we've done the work. Go be out there and be the person you know that you are. Go do your fucking job. And you get these people that want to like pull everybody into the shower and fucking do this. And they were usually the people that didn't work hard all week were the ones who basically became the false prophets. Mm -hmm. So then all of a sudden as we got better and I became a little bit older, I would see this. And I'd be like, fuck off, false prophet. Get the fuck away from me. We've done our jobs. We're professionals. Stop this nonsense. And uh, since then... I've always been like in the absence of true leadership, false prophets appear. So I learned that piece. The other thing I learned is that um, regardless of how it's pitched to you, if it's a business and somebody's making money, you have to treat it the same way. 
So I was very young and very idealistic and very black and white. And uh, that got me into some trouble in my career that I took people at face value. Hey, we need you yeah. to do this and this and, you know, rah, rah, rah. And they sell you part of being a team and you go out and you do some things at your detriment that you shouldn't. And then, you know, they make promises and then you come back and hold them to their word. And you realize that this is a business and that if it's not in writing uh, and believe me, everybody's like a high five and like never confuse that. And I think I confused it very early on. I figured that it's easy to do. team and this and the whole thing meant a lot and that uh, my word meant something and the word is your bond and a handshake. And I realized that it wasn't the case. And I learned that early on, later on. So I'd say anything that involves making money and that looks like a business, if it's, if it walks like a duck, sounds like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's a duck. If it's a business, treat it as such. And that anybody that shits on you because of it being like, whoa, 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 money's changing hands. I'm a, I'm a, a commodity in this thing and I need to treat myself in such a way that I'm protecting who I am. So I didn't learn that very early on and my agent was a fucking idiot and uh, it was very emotional and we made some bad choices and it ended up fucking me because I ended up moving out of Philly and getting a chance to go play for Kansas City, which was great, but I should have never left Philly. It was a great situation. So I learned that piece. The other one that I learned is that uh, you can will yourself to do just about anything if you've prepared for the task and the challenge. So I trained at such a rate, I trained with such intensity in the off season that I knew that nothing that was gonna happen to me during the season was gonna be as hard as what we did in the crucible of training. Yeah. So all of a sudden you show up and you play in the hottest game in NFL history, which I did, which was you know 163 degrees on the field in September one, noon in Dallas on the open, you know, sun coming in. Yep. Um, I played that game and was able to persevere where others weren't because we had trained up into it. I never want to get to a situation where hope is what's going to get me through. I hope that this doesn't happen or I hope I'll get through. I like to walk up there knowing that what I've done is going to give me the, you know, the propulsion to get through it. So in the NFL, um, I do, I've said this to people for years that your worst nightmare in terms of what you haven't prepared for, whether it is watching film or physically or whatever it looks like, if you haven't watched enough film and you don't know this, or you don't understand the scheme, or you haven't physically prepared the way, whatever your fear is will become your reality over and over again, as much as you don't want it. So if you're like nervous, you're like, man, I've watched film. This guy's got an incredible outside spin move, or he's, he does this, you know, Warren Sapp had this move where he'd shoot his chest and he would do this thing we call the matrix. If you haven't prepared for that, he will give that to you until you stop him. Yeah. And your worst fear will get played out in real time with John Madden going back and forth <laughs> or, you know, the announcer, whoever it is going back and forth, circling you and showing this and decrying, you know, this guy's getting killed. Like that'll become your reality. So what you do is you prepare for that so that your reality is hard nose and success. And then you go out and you get a chance to be on John Madden's horse trailer because you end up kicking Warren Sapp's ass. So, I mean, like that was what I trained for. So I just hope is never a good plan. I think I got that from the SEAL teams. It's same deal in the NFL. And um, if you're not prepared, whatever you're not prepared for will become your instant reality, your nightmare, whatever you want to call it. Everything inconsistent, every, everything inconsistent with your goal will reveal itself. Yeah, it's kind of like, uh, <laughs> Doc, you've seen this. Like when you put things off, all of a sudden those things come knocking at your front yeah. door and you can't get away from them. Same in the NFL. Whatever your fear is, whatever you haven't prepared for, will become your reality living even in a time. That's living. life, man. Even if you did 99 out yeah. of 100 yeah. things, that one thing that's inconsistent with your goal, 
that's going to reveal itself. We, we, we'd have guys going. that wouldn't uh, do yeah. the conditioning test and then they show up and they'd be like, Hey, we're gonna do the conditioning test. And then some, and I'd be like, Oh shit, thank God we conditioned for this. So I, um, uh, I just, preparation was key. And I use that with uh, any of the young fighters I work, I put them into a crucible so that nothing that they'll face on the mat or they'll face out there will be as hard as what they've done within training with me. And I get into their ass, we get fucking into it. They come off, like, let's say we're doing the conditioning off the bikes. As soon as they come off the bikes, I chase them, I attack them, I tackle them from behind. I try to get them in this, I try to slam them so that they come off and they're most vulnerable and they know. And they, they told me, they're like, even at my most vulnerable, I know I can fight. So that's, that's good shit. to prepare people for. Thank you, John. Thank you, Kirk. We'll wrap it up. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in out here. Thank you.